Let's pray together. Father, as always, we want to pause and take a moment and not just reflect on the scriptures that we read or the songs that we sang, God, but to ask you to help us before we open up your word to see the truth that's in it. God, as we're going to see today that these words were written for us to have life. And so, God, I pray that that is what would happen today, that you would bring life. There are people here today that are dead. They need you to open their eyes so they can see the truth, the marvelous light. But then there are those of us, God, that we've been made alive, but sometimes we still can't fully see because there's still darkness around us and in us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us as well to see, to believe, to trust you. God, we thank you for this word. And I believe, God, that it has the power within it to bring life. And so, God, that's what we want. Help me to communicate it in a way that is honoring to you and is helpful to us and help us all to receive it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 20. If you don't, don't worry, we got it on the screen as always. But we encourage you to bring a Bible, either a physical one or maybe it's on your phone, because we're teaching through the gospel according to John. And we're in like week 80 something and almost or a little over two years now that we're in this book, but we're coming to the close of it. In fact, today we're going to do the end of chapter 20 and we have one last chapter, chapter 21. But in this chapter, chapter 20, in fact, the last two verses of this chapter, I've mentioned it many times throughout this series, we get the purpose of the book. We get the purpose for which why, uh, for why John wrote this. Because he wants us to see something. He wants us to understand something, to believe something. And so that's what we're going to deal with today. But in doing so, we're also going to talk about a story that's rather famous about a guy that you've probably heard about if you spent any time in church. And we'll do kind of a, a, a reflection question in a second to see how much you know about this guy. But we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31, through the end of the chapter. And so let's jump in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, where we get the name of the person that we're talking about. Now, Thomas, Thomas, and if you've been around church, we put a description before his name and we call him something Thomas. What is it? Doubting. doubting. So you have heard the story. All right. The story of doubting Thomas. But one of my goals today is to get you to never call him that again. Because I want to show you something. One is, that's not what they called him. In fact, look at what they called him. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. Now, why do you think they called him the twin? Because he was a twin, right? He had a twin brother. And this word twin literally is the Greek word didymus. So you may have heard him called that before. So he wasn't the doubter. He was didymus. He was the twin, and we don't know who his brother is, I don't think, but don't you know that he's probably glad that he didn't get that nickname? He's like, that ain't me, that's my brother, y'all. That's, that's, that's Didymus over there. He's the, he's the doubter. But they didn't call him doubter. 
and nor does Jesus. But here's the story. He was not with them, the other disciples, when Jesus came, which we looked at last week. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And and maybe we give him this nickname because he's so emphatic that he won't believe unless he sees. Again, one of my goals is to get you to not call him that anymore. And the reason being is because he's not the only one who doubted. In fact, he's not the only one of these disciples who doubted. I'm gonna show you in just a second how they were doubting too. So I don't like the indication that Thomas is the only one who doubts, and so therefore we call him Doubting Thomas. But also, I think it's because we forget that we too are like Thomas and we doubt. But the most important part is that these doubts came before he saw the resurrected Jesus. So you could say it like this. This was pre-Jesus. Now, straw poll here. Anyone here want to be labeled by your actions pre-Jesus? Anybody want that description? Like adulterous Thomas, lion Thomas, scoundrel Thomas? That's a good one. Anybody else throughout human history want that descriptor? I got to wonder if Thomas is up in heaven. He's like, yo, why y'all keep doing that? That was pre-Jesus. I mean, we don't do that to Peter. We don't do that to James, John, the other disciples. I mean, Peter was way worse. I've mentioned this many times. I mean, Peter cut off a dude's ear. We don't call Peter ear-cutting Peter, right? I mean, denying Peter, he denied Jesus three times. But we don't label him that. So I honestly don't understand. One, I don't know where this came from in church history, and I don't understand why we apply it to him and not the other disciples. But a deeper thing that we need to understand is not just he wasn't the only one that was doubting, but what is the significance to which Thomas places on actually seeing the resurrected Jesus? See, I don't think it's bad or wrong that Thomas is saying, unless I see that he has actually resurrected, I can't believe. Now, again, Jesus is going to say to him later on, you've believed because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe and don't see. But I don't think it's bad or wrong, and it shouldn't be looked at that way, that Thomas wants to understand, or wants, to, wants us to understand better, that without a physical resurrection, there is no life. There is no belief. There is no way that, that we could ever think that believing in Jesus was a good thing because he failed. Again, we talked about this at Easter when it said in John that he must rise again. So again, Thomas, I don't think is wrong or bad when he's saying, listen, unless I see it, that he physically resurrected, then I won't believe it. 
Now, let me help you understand this. In fact, I want to go to Luke chapter 24. I've got these verses here on the screen because Luke gives us a little bit of background that John doesn't. In fact, Luke is going to give us some details of the story we talked about last week when Jesus showed up to the disciples the first time. And look at what Luke says in Luke 24, verse 36 through 40. He says, and they were talking about these things, the fact that people were saying Jesus had resurrected. Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, what's that next word there? Doubts. Let's try that again. Why do what? See, they were doubting too. Thomas isn't the only one. Jesus said, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, here's the key. Look at verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then a few verses later, it says, Hey, y'all got some fish? Because Jesus was hungry. Now, this is what happened when Jesus showed up the first time. And Thomas wasn't there for that. So the first time that Jesus showed up to the other disciples, they thought he was a ghost. They thought he was a spirit. They thought, oh my gosh, this is a spirit, this is a ghost, this is some kind of supernatural crazy thing that's going on here. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. See, it's me. Touch me. See the nails in my hands and in my feet and in, the, in my See it and touch me. So apparently, they are telling Thomas this after it happened, and that's why Thomas said, unless I see it, unless I touch him, then I won't believe. Because they had already seen him they had already touched him. Now, this is why this is so crucial to understand. If we do not have a physical resurrected body of Jesus, then there is no physical bodily resurrection for any of us. There is no future restoration that we can know is guaranteed for us if Jesus himself didn't resurrect. So Thomas, again, even though he doesn't believe them that they saw it, he says, unless I see it, but Thomas is, is just doing good science here. He's just saying, unless I observe it myself, then how can I know that not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but that I too will rise from the dead one day? If you're taking notes, here's my point. It's a bigger theological point that I want you to see. The resurrection guarantees that renewal and restoration is certain. The resurrection guarantees that renewal and restoration is certain. Now, I chose those two words because I want you to understand what they mean. So let me explain to you the definition of the two words, Renewal and restoration. Renewal means this, an instance of resuming an activity or state, watch this, after an interruption. So think about it like this. You had power, it went out, somebody renewed it, and it's back on, all right? 
So there was an interruption that happened. Now it's been renewed. It's turned back on. So the resurrection guarantees that connection is back, which leads to the second word, restoration. Listen to this one. Restoration means the act of returning something, I love this, to a former owner, place, or condition. See, we need to understand the major storyline of the Bible that's going on. Because if we don't fully understand the major, what's called the meta-narrative of the Bible, then we can't fully understand and appreciate what Jesus did. And so theologians have distilled this down to kind of four basic parts or four basic words that describe the entire storyline of this book. So we can give you the entire storyline in four words. That's pretty condensed. So here it is on the screen. You may have heard this before. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, I didn't come up with this, but I want you to understand that this is what the Bible is saying. Now, most times we understand, okay, creation, that's Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. Genesis 3, the fall happens, sin enters the world. That's when the interruption occurred. And the interruption, if you read it, is God was with man, heaven and earth were together. But when sin entered the world, at the fall, an interruption occurred. An interruption occurred, and therefore, a separation occurred between God and man and between heaven and hell, which tells us that a redemption was required. A redemption was required. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament is looking forward to the promise in Genesis 3.16 when God says the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's called the proto-evangelium. What that means is, proto means first, evangelium is good news or gospel. God preached the gospel in Genesis 3.16. He said, an interruption has occurred, but there is one who is coming who will pay for that interruption. So you see the gospel way back in Genesis. That's what redemption is. So when Jesus showed up, watch this, when Jesus showed up, he was redeeming us, we talked about this a few weeks before Easter, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what the crown of thorns signified. He was now cursed. And so a redemption had to be paid. He paid it in his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death. But watch this. That's not the end of the story. A redemption is not the only thing that occurred in Jesus. When he resurrected, that signified a restoration. Because watch this, Jesus got a new body, a restored body. And this restored body can go through walls, but still eats fish. I'm down with that, y'all. I still get to eat, but I can vibrate through walls. That sounds pretty cool to me. That sounds like a new and better version of this one. And let's be honest, this one's pretty good. 
But here's something that I know, and, and, and those of you that are getting older know, and by getting older, I mean you're past the, page of, uh, the age of 25. Because you realize over the hill is not 40. It's actually much younger. It's 25. So if you're 26, you're over the hill. I hate to tell you. Have a great celebration, all right? Because here's what we know. The body, your physical body, stops growing at age 25, which means you're still developing until you're age 25, particularly even in teenagers, late-stage teenagers, 17, 18, 19. Your brain is still developing. And this is why we put the drinking age at 21. You know that, right? Because alcohol impairs your brain development. And so here's what it says. Teenagers' brain isn't fully developed, and so why in the world would we put something in there or allow something to be put in that disrupts that development? So some smart people said the age is 21 because you're still growing. You're still developing. But once you get past 25, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to wake up one day, and you're going to be sore, and people are like, what happened? You're like, I woke up. Like you didn't do something? No, no heroic story. I just rolled out of bed and then got this catch in my back, right? Because here's what's happening to our bodies. Our bodies are decaying. Our bodies are making the long, the, the long, slow death or march to death. Again, welcome to church. So you're marching towards dying, but here's the good news. We now exist between redemption and restoration. The good news of the gospel, as I say this often, is far gooder than what you thought. It wasn't. It's not just that God redeemed you from your sins, it's that he will restore all things. See, here's what's in your future if you're in Christ, restoration. You're gonna get a new, resurrected, what the Bible, I love how Paul says it, glorified body. Glorified body that death has no reign over anymore. Disease has no reign over anymore. You will get a resurrected body that will never die again, just like Jesus got. And here's what's even better. John, who wrote this gospel, wrote also the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, he has a vision, particularly in 20 and 21, when he sees the new heaven and the new earth coming. So not only are we going to get new bodies, we're going to get a new earth. We're going to get a new heaven. But this time, it will be back together with God. It will be renewed from the interruption that happened. It will be restored, but it will be better because it will never be able to be disrupted again. See, here's what you need to know. The physical resurrection of Jesus matters because without it, there's no guarantee that a restoration is coming. But since it happened, it does guarantee that what happened with him, as 1 Corinthians says, will happen with us because he was the first fruits, which means he was first, but he's not last. So this is why Thomas is like, unless I see that, I won't believe. Because without that, There's no hope. There's no hope of a future restoration. 
Now let's get back to Jesus having this conversation with Thomas. Verse 26 of John 20. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, so this is the second time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. See, again, this is why I don't like just picking on Thomas. He isn't the only one who was doubting. What happened eight days prior to this? Jesus showed up behind their locked doors and said, peace be with you. They saw Jesus and they still go back to their locked doors. So maybe the nickname we should give all the other ones is door lockers, right? I mean, they're so fearful. Now, we know because Pentecost hasn't happened yet. So they're in between the resurrection and the dissension of the Holy Spirit. And there was a 50-day span in between that time. So they're in that. And we know that once the Holy Spirit comes, they never lock their doors again. They're not living in fear. They're living on mission. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So they never lock their doors again. They finally move out of fear, move into faith, and they witness. But they're in this in-between time, and Jesus shows up again. Now watch this. Look at what Jesus does with Thomas. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, pull my finger. <laughs> gotcha, didn't I? I don't know if Jesus was a pull my finger kind of guy, but I like to think that he was. You know? You don't know that, just ask the dad, all right? That's a dad thing. No, he doesn't say pull my finger, but look at what he does say. Put your finger here. So he may not be a pull your finger kind of guy, pull my finger, but he is put your finger here kind of guy. And listen to what he says, and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I want you to think about this. This was eight days after Thomas had said to the disciples I will not believe unless I see and put my finger in his side. Now, this is not a trick question. But when Thomas said that to the disciples eight days prior, was Jesus physically in the room? Yes or no? No. Not a trick question. I know you're like, well, we normally say yes around here. No, okay. So Jesus was not physically in the room. How do we know that? Because if Jesus was physically in the room, Thomas would have never said it, right? You with me? Now, why am I pointing this out? If Jesus wasn't physically in the room, how does he know that Thomas said this? Jesus didn't hear it with his physical ears but he heard it. Here's why I'm pointing this out. 
You and I need to know that even when we lock ourselves away in dark places out of fear, that Jesus still hears you. He still hears you. This is why we pray, isn't it? We pray, watch this. Let me say it this way. We pray because we believe our words are not bound by walls. Why? Because Jesus is not bound by walls. The spirit of God is not bound by walls. So you and I can have the confidence of knowing that even in our darkest times, when we have locked ourselves away out of fear and life gets extremely dark, all we have to do is speak. Not even necessarily audibly. Because the psalmist says this, where can I go away from your presence? I can go to the highest heights, you are there. I can go to the lowest depths, you are there. The writer of Hebrews says, darkness is as light to him. Now, that may be threatening to you because you like hiding from people. You know, you hide from your mom, you hide from your spouse. So you need to know you can't hide from your dad. He sees, or it may be encouraging to you. And I want it to be encouraging to you because I want you to know you don't have to try and get out in order for God to get to you. All you got to do is say it. How did Jesus know that Thomas said that? Because he's God. And watch this. What did Jesus do? He went straight to him. You could even say he showed up just for Thomas. He shows up and he goes straight to Thomas and he says, put your finger here. Put your finger here. I am resurrected. And then what does Thomas do? Thomas says the declaration that all believers declare when they see. He says two phrases, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Now, these two phrases are important to understand because these two phrases are the two parts of what it means to believe. Now, I'm going to show you both of them and also show you how, unfortunately, a lot of times, particularly in the modern church, we focus on just one of them. So let's deal with the second phrase first, when he says, my God. Now, that word there is theos. It means God, higher power. This is Thomas realizing he needs help outside of himself. If you've gone through any kind of 12-step program like AA or NA or that kind of thing, they're all based on the same basic 12-step program. There's Christian versions of that as well. But the steps are simply this. Step one is admit that you are powerless. You are powerless. Step two is receive power from outside yourself. 
Now, the original program was developed by a believer. And so the concept is you need a God outside of yourself to come and save you. That's what Thomas was saying. So in essence, here's what Thomas is saying. Save me. You're my savior. I need help. And this is what's amazing. Of course he would say that because Jesus came to him and Jesus showed him. Jesus said, see me, believe. And so this is the moment in a believer's life where, again, we don't see Jesus physically because he's not here physically. He's in heaven with God. But now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see spiritually, we understand we can't save ourselves. So there comes a moment in time where we say, God, save me. But there's a second part to the phrase that he said which is the part that a lot of times, particularly here in the Western world, we forget. Or maybe you were never taught this. And so I want you to understand. It's the phrase when he says, my Lord. Now this word Lord, I'm gonna give you the definition of it. It means one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind. Lord, ruler, I love this one. One who commands. One who commands. So watch this. In one simultaneous moment, Thomas made Jesus his God, the one who saves him, and his Lord, the one who commands him. Now this is why this is important. There's a lot of people that have come to Jesus and they had a moment where they believed and they said, God, save me. But they didn't understand that at the same time to believe is to say, God, command me. Command me. How we say it a lot today is people will say they have trusted Christ as their savior, but not as their Lord. Now here's the the wrestle or the struggle, and I get this question often. Can someone be saved if they've made God their savior and not their Lord? Which means this, they have trusted God to save them, but they're not obeying his commandments. My answer to that question is, I don't know. I'm not God. But here's what I do know. To have God as your savior is to have him as your Lord. Not just as the one who saves you, but commands you. Now, could there be a situation where somebody trusts them, trusts God to save them, but then it takes them time to have God command them? Sure. But I can't say yes or no to salvation. Here's all I can say. A halfway decision is a no-way disciple. You understand what I mean when I say that? And, And here's where I want us to understand the power to which what just happened in Thomas's life. Thomas said, save me, command me. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, I've been pastoring for almost 25 years now. And I gotta be honest with you. I do not understand the wrestle that people have with God 
commanding them. Now hear what I am saying, but don't hear what I'm not saying. You're like, that's confusing. Okay, let me explain it to you. What I am saying is this. I am saying we can struggle with his commands. I'm not saying if you struggle with his commands, you're not a believer. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. What I am saying is it's one thing to struggle with the commands. It's a whole nother thing to struggle with the power that he has to command you. Does that make sense with what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, listen, me as a pastor, because before I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a shepherd, I'm a sheep. I bad, just like you do. All right. I wrestle with the commands of God. Commandments like be holy as I am holy. Honor God with your body. I, I wrestle with the commands of God. But listen to me, I do not wrestle with God's authority to command me. That's what I'm saying. And what I'm getting at is I don't understand with people who wrestle with God's authority to command them. And here's why I don't understand it. His commandments are for your good. They're for your joy. Why in the world would I not want the God who died for me to command me? You see what I'm saying? See, it was so easy for Thomas to come to the conclusion that Jesus should be not only his God, but his Lord, because Jesus came to Thomas in his doubts. Jesus came to Thomas in his despair. Jesus came to Thomas in his darkness. If Jesus was willing to give his life for Thomas, then it's not a struggle for Thomas to understand that he should live his life for Jesus. You see what I'm saying? See, God gives us commands. Very clearly, he gives us commands. I've already mentioned some of them. Honor God with your body. See, there's a mantra that says in our culture today, it's my body, it's my choice. I've mentioned this many times. According to the scriptures, that is not true. It's not your body, and so it's not your choice because our body now belongs to Christ. Why? Because this body that I'm to honor him with, I'm to honor, watch this, I'm to honor him with this one knowing that a better one's coming. And watch this, why would I not want to honor him with this one when a better one's coming? See, you're wrestling with this one, right? You wake out of bed and you pull a hamstring, you don't know how you did it. You've been down at Target and tear your meniscus. That happened to my wife, by the way. But you honor God through the aches and the pains. You do with your body what God says to do with the body because a better body's coming. You see what I'm saying? Let me do another one that people wrestle with a lot. The Bible is very clear. Honor God with your wealth. Honor God with your wealth. But we wrestle with that one, don't we? Because the wealth and riches of this life is all that we can see. 
this is where people are like, well, God just wants my money. No, he doesn't. He just wants his money back that he let you borrow. That's what tithing is. Tithing is not giving. It's returning what is his that he's letting you hold on to. Here's the good thing. He gave you a hundred of it. He just says, give 10 back. And I say this all the time. Why 10? Because 10 is just enough to make you mad. For real. But watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. But why do you wrestle with that? Let me make my point this way. Why do you wrestle with valuing things here now like gold that's going to be pavement in the next life? Right? The Bible says, the Bible says, streets of what? Gold. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to assume that none of you here, when you leave today, are going to walk out to one of our parking lots with a chisel, I'm just putting words together today, with a hammer and a chisel and take some of our asphalt because it's so valuable. I'm going to assume that you're not going to do that because if you do, we'll arrest you. All right? But why won't you do it? Now, let me, if that was paved with gold out there, would you do it? You're like, Pastor, I gotta be honest, I'd try. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I come up here at night. That's why we got cameras, because y'all are thieves. <laughs> and whoever's making circle donuts in the parking lot, please stop. Lord. But watch this. What is wealth to you now? You will walk on then. It's so beneath you. See, the reason why I can be generous now and honor God with my wealth is because he's bringing a life of wealth that I'll walk on. See, he can be trusted this is what I'm saying. I don't understand when we wrestle with his authority to command us because his commandments only lead to more gold, more good. Do you see that? See, this is why Jesus came to Thomas. Jesus came to Thomas because Thomas was stuck in darkness and Jesus wanted life for him. That's our Jesus. In fact, one of my biggest pet peeves, and I say this often, my biggest pet peeves is when Christians, and not even Christians, even non-Christians will say, you know that God of the Old Testament, he's real mean. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament, as if they're different gods. But here's why it's my pet peeve, and I've said this many times. It's because that's a denial that there was grace in the Old Testament. And watch this. Also a denial that there's judgment in the new. There's judgment. And there's grace in the old. It's the same God. In fact, let me show you this. Lamentations, which I referenced last week, which amazingly, we actually sang in the song today called Dwell. Look at Lamentations chapter 3, 22 and 23. In the Old Testament, listen to what it says about God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Verse 23, you've probably heard this before. They are new every what? Let's try that again. They are new every what? 
morning. Great is, you probably learned it, thy faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Now watch this. Why does Jesus come to Thomas in his darkness and in his doubt? Because he wants to have great mercy on Thomas. That's who he is. Now here's what's really cool. John tells us that this event happens eight days later. That's significant. Because in Jewish culture, the number eight represented something. Now, the Bible says God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. So we reference it to the seven days of creation. What comes after seven? That's not a trick question, all right? What comes after seven? Eight. Watch this. So on the eighth day, in Jewish culture, that signified a new week or a new beginning or a new creation. Seven days of creation, eight new. Why did Jesus come to Thomas on the eighth day? Because that was Thomas's day of new beginnings. See, the reason ultimately why I don't like calling him doubting Thomas, because he's now believing Thomas. He believed. He turned from not believing to believing because he saw something he had never seen before. His heart was changed. He's now a new creation. And this is why I said we should now look at him now as a believer, not a doubter. Why? Because of the mercy of Jesus. And here's what's so amazing about Jesus. It's not just that on the eighth day, it's a new creation. According to Lamentations, it's every day. Every day. Every morning, listen to me, church, every morning, God has new mercies for you. He has more love for you. And you're like, I'm just so afraid it's going to run out. Did you read it? It never ends. Never ends. See, this is what makes life in God so good. Because now there is therefore, according to Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those that are in Christ. See, God can't condemn you for what happened yesterday if you believe Jesus today. Because not only is great is his faithfulness, but also great is his forgetfulness. The Bible says, it's as though your sin is as far as the east from the west. I never thought I would quote 51st dates in a sermon, but I'm about to. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore. Adam falls in love with this girl who every morning when she wakes up, she forgets everything about her life that had happened the day before. And so every day, it's like he's going on 50 new first dates. Now, again, I'm not trying to demean God, just like I wasn't trying to demean Jesus earlier by saying a pull my finger joke, but I want you to understand something. Every day with God is new. He's forgotten yesterday because you're in Christ. That's dead and gone. You are now a new creation in Christ. It doesn't mean you get saved every day, but watch this. The application of your salvation gets applied every day. New mercy every morning. New love, new grace every morning. That's why Jesus came 
to Thomas. See, again, I don't like us calling him Doubting Thomas because it also diminishes the power of Jesus to overcome Thomas's doubts. He ain't doubting Thomas no more, y'all. He's believing Thomas. And that's what John wants you to know. Let's go back to John, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Listen to what John says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I can't wait till we get to this new heaven and new earth and we hear about all those things. Later, he's gonna say, they outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. There's so many things he was doing. But look at verse 31. But these are written. These are written. I've mentioned this verse many times throughout this series. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Notice the words there. He's not Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ isn't his name. Is it like the, you know, Jason Gertis? No, Jesus is his name. We use the Greek version of that name. The Hebrew version is Yeshua, which is Joshua. So his name is Jesus, but Christ is his title. That's why he says Jesus is the Christ. And the word the is there. It's called a definite article. This is where Jehovah's Witness get it wrong because they believe in a misreading of John chapter one where it says Jesus was a God. Mormon's the same way. No, 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 he's not a God, he's the God. That's what John is saying. See, they just failed to keep reading in John. He's not a Christ, he's the Christ. And he goes a step further, the son of God. He's not a son of God, he's the son of God. Now watch this. Here's what happens if you believe that. And that by believing, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, Jesus was after life for Thomas. And John wrote that down because Jesus is also after life for you. But here's what you need to know. It's not just any kind of life. It's life in Jesus' name. Now watch this. I'd never quite understood this before, or I shouldn't say understood. I never quite dug into the deeper meaning of that phrase, in his name. But as I was studying it this week, I looked up and I was wondering, I wonder if this in his name means anything. Like, is it significant? And here's the definition of the word name. It can mean name like we think it means, but watch this. It also can mean a certain category or a certain type. So you could write that sentence like this. You get life in his category. Or watch this, in his type, which means you get a type of life like his. You get a category of life like his. And what category is he in? You want to know a reference verse? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 16 says this. He is a greater priest because not from legal descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So watch this. If you believe in Jesus, you get life in the indestructible category. You get life 
of the indestructible type. And I'm gonna blow your mind. What does indestructible mean? Not destructible. Means no one can destruct it. No one can destroy it. And that's the kind of life you and I get if we believe in Jesus. Watch this. We get a life that not even death can destroy. We get a life that not even disease can destroy. We get a life that not even darkness or depression or disease can destroy. We get a life that's indestructible. How do we know that? Because Jesus's life was indestructible. Because he came back to life again. Don't you know that on the day of the resurrection, Satan was like, oh crap. I done did it. I thought I killed him. Satan hadn't read the Bible. Genesis 3.16 that said, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That's what Jesus did. Watch this. He crushed the thing that's crushing you. And if you believe, watch this to my last point. In believing, we have life in the Christ category. In the Christ category. See, this is why telling people about Jesus, it is hard. I get it because people don't believe, but it's easy because we have something to offer that no one else does. Because everybody else who is not named Jesus, watch us, isn't in that category. They died and they're still dead and they didn't rise again. But those of us who believe in Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, we believe that he didn't just redeem us, but he's coming one day to restore us. He will give us new resurrected bodies and we will be with God in a new heaven, in a new earth, and nothing or no one can destroy that because it's the power of an indestructible life. And if you are in Christ, that's what you have. Now again, it doesn't mean you don't struggle. You struggle with your body. And this is how the, the Bible says it. Even though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day. Yes, my body is dying, but my spirit is growing. Yes, my flesh is decaying, but I got a new one coming. I got version 2.0. See, internet coders weren't the first to come up with that. Everybody wants that kind of life. And the good news of the gospel, as I say often, it's far gooder than you ever thought. Because he didn't just redeem you, but he will one day restore you by the power of his indestructible life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even though you created us and we brought sin and destruction, we brought the fall, 
you still came to us to redeem us and to one day restore us. You came to us in our doubt and in our darkness. And if we'll just open our eyes to see the fact that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, but the punishment that brought us peace is upon him. We can be saved. We can have life. And so God, I pray for those people right now that have never had that moment, like Thomas, where they have said, my Lord and my God. God, I pray right now you'd turn them into believers. You'd open their eyes to see the truth and they'd respond in faith. No one looking around or talking here as we close. There's never been that moment for you. All you have to do is speak. In faith and say, I believe just like Thomas did. So right there where you are, if you want to trust Christ for the first time, you don't have to pray this out loud, but you can pray this with me. You can say, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to live the life that I could have never lived, but who died the death that I deserved, but rose again beating it. I believe and I trust Jesus as my Lord and my God. Thank you for having mercy on me. No one looking around or talking again as we close. If the first time you trusted Jesus today and you're in one of our physical locations, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. But as I say every week, for those of us who have trusted Jesus, you may be kind of stuck on repeat of doubts and darkness and depression, despair. And maybe it is because of your physical body. or just the results of sin in a physical world. But I wanna encourage you that life is coming that is indestructible. So keep believing. Even though you're wasting away, ask the Spirit to renew you day by day. But also to those of us who are wrestling with having God as the one who commands us. I wasn't trying to make fun of you earlier when I said, I don't understand. But I want you to understand that all his commandments are good. And if you will obey him, you'll actually have more life and joy. So maybe there's some areas in your life where you're just struggling to obey God, but today by the Spirit of God, you can say, help me. 
I believe, but help me in my doubts. And he's faithful. He'll give you the grace and mercy you need to trust him, to believe him, to obey him. But I promise you, if you will live life his way, you will have more life. Father, I pray that you would constantly bring this indestructible life to us. Because of Jesus, through the person of the Holy Spirit, God, help us to have life to the fullest. And we know, God, that there's a certain sense because we are now still bound by physical life and death, but we can look forward to the life that's coming and know that one day we will no longer be bound because we will have resurrected bodies just like Jesus and we will be existing in a new heaven and a new earth that has been renewed and restored back to you. And until that day, God, help us to operate in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church.